All right, so welcome to General Relation Institute's Spring Intensive 2022. And I have our outline on the board. Our general theme is that we're going to learn to show what is clear about the eternal power of God from general revelation. And that's one sentence, but I split it up into three parts because we'll be learning about each of those parts today. And we're going to be recording this if you'd like to share it with others in the future or go back and revisit yourself. And our general outline will, will roughly stick to this. We're going to start by talking about something called biblical atheism. Biblical atheism. You might wonder what that is. That sounds almost like a contradiction. And we'll have a break in between each class. Uh, next, why we need arguments. We're here to learn about how to show it's clear God exists, which gives you the sense that we'll be learning about arguments. So why do we need those? Aren't there, aren't there better or other ways to approach knowing God? And what is an argument? Sometimes just that term sounds like a negative thing, right? Like uh, something you do, more, more like bickering. No one likes to bicker. So why would we want to do that? So we need to learn what arguments are. And then five and six, we'll get into arguments. The argument for clarity that there must be some things that are clear, and the argument that something must be eternal. And those go together this way. We'll, we'll give the argument that something must be clear, and then we'll illustrate it with that very next argument. Here's an illustration of something that's clear. There must have been something from eternity. And then seven, the argument that matter is not what's eternal, and the argument that the soul is not eternal. And again, those two are related. So there's more to do than that. This is just our first intensive. We're going to have another one in July. Welcome. Another intensive in July as we plan on our September conference. So there's lots of good things to cover as we show that God exists. And that's where we're going to begin is what exactly do we mean by God? So if you've been involved in apologetics or philosophy, you've read about uh, giving proofs for God's existence. H have you ever tried to do that? Has anyone ever asked you, like, why do you believe in God? Or maybe you've wondered that yourself. Why do I believe in God? Do I have an argument? And you might have even heard counter-arguments. Someone might have said, uh, not only don't you have a good argument, but I have an argument to show there is no God. I'm going to sneeze here. No. Yep. No. So you might have proofs to show there is no God. And then maybe you just settle on, well, that's what you believe, and I have what I believe. And let's talk about something else. So it's never really settled or, or, or decided. And you see that in the world today. Lots of different beliefs about God. And if we can prove that God exists. And I would think 
just speaking anecdotally, this is not based on any kind of scientific study, but it seems like knowledge of or, or belief in God is the, is the less respectable between the two, intellectually. So people who say there is no God, that they're the intellectuals, and then people who aren't very educated think there is God. And then so you'll see, you'll see books from Christian publishers sometimes, professors who believe in God, like it's an oddity, but it also is it meant to be like, look, you can be smart and believe in God still, right? Which means you're, that kind of book means you're already on the defensive, right? So we want to we raise some questions about that whole approach. Is that true that, that belief, in, belief that God, there is no God is the one that has more, more proof? And what is, the, what is involved in giving a proof? Is that really just for the intellectuals? Part of what we're doing at, at our General Relation Institute is arguing that this is for everybody, not just for intellectuals. In fact, there might be a good argument made that the intellectuals have a harder time than most at getting it. Is that interesting? The kind of opposite of what you might think. But yeah, they might have some impediments to their understanding because they're intellectuals. They'll need, they'll need a special other class for them, whereas other people say, yeah, I understand there are no uncaused events. That's pretty straightforward. So, proofs for God's existence. Now, the first thing that stands out to me in this sentence is the word God. Proofs for what? What is God? And that's not very, that's not addressed a lot of times when you get into arguments for God's existence. What you'll find is proofs for an unmoved mover, uncaused event, a designer, a lawgiver. And then you'll find counter proofs against those. We can find law in a, in a different way. There's actually not very much design. The world is filled with evil. Uh, so I meant, sorry, I should say uh, not uncaused event, Un, uncaused cause. There are no uncaused causes. There's just universes all the way back. Same thing with unmoved movers. There are none of those. But even if you settle this point, to me, none of this looks like God very much. Maybe the last two start to hint at God, but you could have those without God. So what we want to do, I'm just going to begin with what I'll call a full definition of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in being, Wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. That's taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. And it has three parts. First part, God is a spirit, gets to the kind of substance God is. God is not material. God is immaterial, but immaterial is a negative word, just not material. What is God? Positively, well, God's spirit, not physical, conscious, not made of matter. God doesn't have a body. 
So that gets into, anticipates the prohibition against idols. That's not what God looks like. God doesn't have a body. And then the second part of the definition is called the incommunicable attributes. It's these three. God is infinite, which means that in which there is no greater. Eternal, which means without beginning or end. It doesn't mean merely without end. Because when, when we go over this argument up here, the soul is not eternal, I inevitably get someone saying, so you believe the soul ends? No. Just that it had a beginning. It could go on forever. That's everlasting. And then, uh, infinite unchanging. God's not growing or declining, celebrating a birthday. Hey, God's 130 years old. This is great. God doesn't complete his bachelor's degree and have a graduation party. God's infinite and therefore unchanging. And the idea is that these three incommunicable attributes all go together. You can't separate them and have an eternal but changing thing. And that's going to be the heart of the arguments in point seven up here. Once you know something's eternal, you also know something's unchanging. And if you, if you see an object and it's changing, you know it's also not eternal. Now you've done what's called an inference and you're beginning to make arguments. This might be the day where you look back on, what time will it be, say maybe in 30 minutes or so, and you say, that's the day I felt most human. Do you know why? It's the day I, I was making inferences the most in my life. And that's the most human thing to do, isn't it? Using reason. Let's say you go home and you find that your pet has made a mess on the rug. Do you give your pet a lecture about hygiene and explain again sanitation to your pet? I don't think so. It's not, I mean, you could, but it wouldn't get you anywhere, would it? They don't reason. And even your computer, you might think, wow, but computers are so close to being intelligent. No, they're not. They have to be told exactly what to do. They can't do anything on their own. They're not, they're not smart at all. So you're going to start learning to make inferences. That's this number three up here. Why we need arguments. And I, I just gave you an example. Simply from the definition of God, how we can start to conclude matters not eternal. Just by doing this first part, just by beginning with asking, what is God? Even before we get into proofs. So we know when someone says there is no God, they're saying this does not exist. And we have to ask the follow-up question then, well, what do you think is eternal? And if they're, if they're telling us something's eternal, but it's a changing thing, then we know they're involved in a contradiction. And that's what we'll learn about today, how to show that. And the third part of the definition is this. These attributes or properties, because these are ones we can have also. It's just that God has them infinitely, eternally, and unchangingly, whereas we have them finitely, temporally, and changing. 
but we can have being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth also. That's not unique to God. That's part of that, that's getting to what it means to be in the image of God. So three parts to the definition, and that's really what you want to do before you, you have any discussion with someone about does God exist? Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. So when I hear an atheist like Richard Dawkins speak, I hear him speaking about Zeus. So I would agree with him, yeah, there is no, no God in that sense. No one like Zeus exists. But he doesn't get to what's eternal or ask what, what does he think is eternal? Does he have any proof for his belief? So to say there is no God, so atheism means uh, no God as defined above. It simply is the word ah, not theism, God. So lots of things that you might call religion can fall into atheism. Isn't that interesting? Might call, might, there might be re many religions that are atheist religions. Atheism doesn't mean simply materialism. That might be how you thought about it mostly is the atheist is the guy who says there's just mad. That's all that exists. The best example of that guy is named Epicurus. There are no gods and there is no soul. There are no gods and there is no soul. Now from there, I'm going to give you a, a hint of where the atheist goes. From there, you can conclude, do what you want is the whole of the law. You know where that quote's from? Do what you want is the whole of the law. Occultists would know. Right? People who like the occult. The Satanic Bible. But they're quoting it from Aleister Crowley, who I think is just getting it from Epicurus, adapting Epicurus. It's a cumbersome way of saying, do whatever you want. Maybe Journey said it better. Any way you want it, that's the way you need it. That's, that's atheism in pop culture. Because it's not true that any way you want it, that's the way you need it. That's the way of saying this. Do whatever you want, do whatever makes you happy. That's a rejection of God. But that's interestingly very influential belief today, right? Do whatever makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt others. They might add that in there. The, the Satanists might say, I, we're very peaceful. We don't want to hurt others. We just want to do whatever we want. Okay, well, we'll look in that and see. That's just called atheism, not Satanism. And we'll figure out why right now. So how do we know which one to believe? You might have a preference. The fact that you're here, and I know uh, most of you, I know that you think uh, this is true. No one's here who doesn't think that's true, but how do we show it? And I want to suggest that showing that God is real is the beginning of our fellowship with God. It's not simply 
about winning an argument or commanding many facts, about formally showing a proposition is true. There's this aspect of fellowship with God. Uh, a related term is communion with God. Now, it should be obvious to you that if you don't believe God is real, you don't have fellowship with God. But you could also believe God is real and not have fellowship with God. And, and I, I suspect it might be because you don't, you, you don't, you might say God is real, but you don't believe this about God. So, how do we have fellowship with God? Does that sound, I mean, I don't think anyone would say that's not good. Even the atheists, they might say, yeah, if, if God exists as you define God, that'd be a good thing. There just isn't anything like that. It's like saying uh, it'd be good to have fellowship with Superman, but there isn't a Superman. Uh, unless, the only, the only caveat might be if they're hung up on the problem of evil. And they say, no, the God you're describing is, is actually wicked because of how we see the world. So that might be, we're going we're gonna to come to that. That's going to be the uh, July intensive, the problem of evil. That might be one you bring up today, right? Say, wait a minute, what about evil? Oh, don't worry, we'll go to that. So formally showing a proposition's true is usually what people do in, in the kind of arguments. I'm right and you're wrong. And there is something to that. You know, you want to know this belief is true. But we're going to go further than that. We want to have fellowship with God. We want to see how atheism is really a denial of fellowship with God. Which means if you've argued against atheism, but you haven't come to fellowship with God, you haven't done much. You might have shown the atheist is wrong, but then you've come short yourself. So you're in the same boat. You have to go through to that next level. And we're going to, I'm going to use some illustrations from David, James, and, Paul, and uh, Jesus to show this is the case. You can't simply stop with, thinking, well, I've proven there's an unmoved mover, so the atheist is wrong. Well, the demons know that. Didn't do them any good. You'd never had fellowship with God. So let's look at some specifics of biblical atheism. This is how the Bible describes the atheist. And, and Psalms 14 and 53 are uh, well-known examples. It is a fool who says, in his heart, there is no God. Again, look at the parts of this. Fool. And it's in his heart. There is no God. So three parts to that I want to think about. Now, this is not simple name calling. Most of the time when we use fool, we shouldn't. It's name calling. So we say someone's a fool just because we're frustrated. That's not what's happening here. This is a description. There really is a condition of being a fool. And the fool... is especially identified 
as the one who thinks he knows and does not know, but teaches others. So fool thinks he knows and doesn't know. And, he, and that's why you might have called someone a fool. They, they come across as someone who thinks they know. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a fool. So this is the person who, who says in his heart there is no God. And this in his heart. That important is that just added in there. That, that refers to his inner thoughts. He may or may not say this. And so we might, we, we live in an age where that's just said publicly. But there have been ages where you wouldn't admit to that publicly. But you live as if there is no God. And so the uh, existentialists of the last century thought that it was kind of relieving to be able to just confess this in public. Just to be honest with, my, with everyone. Here's who I am. I, I don't believe there's a God. And they thought that was therapeutic rather than, uh, so, so perhaps, I'm saying perhaps it might be better to be honest with what you think than to think it in the side but be forced to say something else in public. Maybe that's better, than, but those are both terrible options with regard to atheism. A third option would be the fact that you see this tension should make you say to yourself, maybe I'm wrong about this atheism, and rethink it. So in his inner thoughts, these are also the thoughts that are most dear to him. It's not the other way around. The thoughts we present to others, we might be lying about it. But our inner thoughts are your true self. This is who you are. And the fool says this, and it's that there is no God. But we have to expand on that now because that's not simply philosophical materialism. Today, most Christian philosophers think they've proven God exists if they show philosophical materialism is false. And that's simply not true. There's lots of other options. So let me, let me, uh, Psalm 50, Psalm 14 and 53 are very similar. So I'm just going to write about both of them here. But, but they are, they do have differences that are worth reflecting on in a different setting. So it says in them, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone astray. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's the next verse after this one about the fool. That's pretty uh, powerful. That's an indictment. It's not that most people don't. None do good. And that be, look at the order. Do any of them seek God and understand? No. And because of that, none of them do what is good. 
but it begins here, not the other way around. And a lot of times we, we, we go the other way. Someone will say, but there are moral atheists. There are, there are atheists who will clean their neighbor's yard when they see it's dirty and help him fix his tire and donate to charities that feed the poor. Of course there are atheists who do those things. What are you talking about? Well, interestingly, I'm not talking about atheists here, and I don't, in that sense, materialists, and I don't think the psalmist is either. And he says all. This applies to the religious people also. We're going to talk about both the, the, the uh, false philosophy and false religion. So I don't accept that whole uh, paradigm in the first place where you say, well, there are moral atheists. Yeah, you're already going uh, in the wrong understanding of morality. Are there any atheists who seek God? Oh, of course not. Well, that's where the problem began. Not if you give to charity. And then he says, have all workers of iniquity no knowledge. Rhetorically, and the answer is no. And that's a strange one. You might wonder about that. Wait, so you're saying they don't know 2 plus 2 is 4. I hope you see that's kind of uh, missing the point of this psalm, but you, you get questions like that from people. I'll call them Facebook questions. That's the level of questions you get on Facebook. So you're saying they don't know 2 plus 2 is 4. Well, the context is speaking about not understanding or seeking God. They know nothing about that. And really, therefore, any other knowledge they have won't benefit them at all. They can, they can know that 2 plus 2 is 4 and balance their checkbook, and it doesn't benefit them at all. So this is the beginning of how the Bible describes atheism. But there's more. In Psalm 36, 1, the transgression of the wicked saith, again within my heart, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. So no fear of God. This is getting us to the fact that you can, I'm gonna introduce a, a, a fellow to you. We'll name him Damon. And Damon believes there is a God, but he doesn't fear God. And that's biblical atheism. What does it mean to fear God? Well, since, the, since we've used this translation, the word fear in English has shifted. And we mean something usually more like craven fear, where you're cowering in the corner while Mike Myers and Freddy Krueger roam the halls. And you think, okay, so I have to fear God like that. God is uh, fearful. This is more like awe and respect. The awe of God. You, but it does tend to fear in the sense that you realize who God is and who you are. And the insurmountable difference between the two. And it's fearful that God would even speak to you. And also that God is just and holy and you're not. And there's consequences for your not being holy. 
and God in his perfect justice upholds those consequences. That's fearful. We were told to fear God from the very beginning when we were told, the day you eat, you'll surely die. That should put the fear of God into you. So the atheist, the biblical atheist, does not fear God, does not see God's holiness and his own corruption, does not believe the day you eat, you will surely die. Sin always and immediately leads to death. So in this sense, our first parents acted as biblical atheists when they ate. And certainly the serpent is a biblical atheist. So we don't want to have a narrow argument where we think we show Epicurus that there's an unmoved mover. That's what philosophy gets a bad name for. And there's certain people that play Sudoku. There's other people who play with those cards magic. There's Pokemon people. And there's these guys that get together and talk about if they're un unmoved movers. And that's not useful to the most, most Christians, right? What's useful to all of us is how the Bible is describing that we should know God. And this whole, this whole thing that we're doing today should put the fear of God into us. If you left today and there was someone outside taking a survey and saying, hey, what's one thing you, you came away knowing? Well, I've learned to fear God. That'd be good, right? I also said another one, which I'm fine with. I became human. <coughs> Either one of those would be good. Follow up on. That'd be funny on like Yelp or something. The Yelp review. Uh, I learned to fear God. But that's what we're doing in showing that God exists. We're not just playing mind games or doing logical puzzles. And then, he continues in Psalm 36 to say, God does not see, God does not hear, God does not act. So the person saying this in some sense says there is a God. He doesn't do anything. Instead of saying the opposite, the psalmist argues the one who made the eye, does he not see? So he gives an argument about against that. God sees the most. Our seeing is only a limited example of the perfection of seeing, which is what God does. Whereas the atheist is turning the other way around and making our seeing the standard and say, God doesn't even do that. And the same thing with hearing or acting. So you'll have a lot of the world's mythologies and a lot of your favorite stories involve some original deity who started things off and now he's distant, asleep, dead. The Babylonian uh, original deity died and the other gods live in his carcass. So there's some recognition. Yeah, there was this guy, El. He made stuff. But where is that? I don't see him. He's not involved anymore. He left us on our own. We're here to fend for ourselves. And people still speak that way today when they talk about events in the world. They don't see the providential rule of God in each moment. That's what we should learn to recognize. Otherwise, we might be flirting with biblical atheism. 
if we mostly think in terms of human causes or uh, national causes, international conflicts, and we don't see God's rule in the world, well, then we're flirting with the same thing. We're saying it's not God, it's something else. Or God's kind of standing back and watching humans do their thing. Instead of saying, no, God's actively involved in ruling for his purposes. And so by contrast, look at Psalm 111. The psalmist praises God for all his mighty works. And he goes through a list of those. The mighty works of God. And he ends in verse 10 with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So there's going to be a connection now. The, the biblical atheist is explaining why he doesn't have to keep God's commandments. Oh, I don't need to keep God's commandments because God's asleep, God's dead, God's distant, there is no God. Some one of those, right? So I should do what I want to make myself happy. Or I should do what my local deity tells me to do. The God of my group. Not the God who created all things. So there's a connection between the fear of God and keeping his commands. And I think you see that naturally in terms of what fear, in terms of fear of getting a punishment for wrongdoing. Do you fear speeding? I bet, I bet you speed, don't you? Because you know the limitations of enforcing the speed limit. And you can kind of look around and see, I don't think there's any speed traps here. Pedal to the metal and you're going. Or you might not do that, but you might have like a 10 mile over rule, right? 45 really means 55. So there's not a fear of speed enforcement in you. And that'd be an example. Do you fear breaking the commands of God? Or do you think, well, God's probably not paying attention this time. No one's around, including God, so I can get away with it. Well, that's not fearing God. That's biblical atheism. The truth of the matter is, back up here to the definition of God, God is infinite. God is just. God knows all. God does care about what you do. That's interesting because the, the biblical atheists will say, why does God care what we do when it comes to them doing wrong things? But then when something goes wrong, why doesn't God care about us? It goes both ways, right? Well, no, one or the other, you can, buddy. You can't have both. God does care about you so much that he cares that you don't sin because he wants you to be uh, good. So... Psalm 111. And then, I, I mentioned this already, but just keep in mind James 2.19, where you might, you might meet a clever fellow who says, he can prove God exists, but you know his life's not in order. James says, you believe that there is a God. Good. 
Remember Damon? The demons believe that and shudder or tremble. So at least they do have some response of, man, this is a powerful enemy that I have. It's not enough, but it's some response compared to the guy who's just like, oops, turning God into a, a, a logical puzzle. I did Sudoku in the morning. I read Thomas Aquinas in the afternoon and saw there are no, there is an unmover. And then I drank myself into oblivion at night. No real effect on his life. So if you believe there's a God, James is exhorting us to the same thing the psalmist did here. Keep the commands of God then. You claim to have faith, but you don't live as if you have faith. Your faith is dead. So some people worry that James is a, a book of works. It's not. Or it is. It's both in different senses. James is reminding us that there's a connection between our beliefs and our actions. And he's also reminding us that there's something called self-deception. So we might say we believe something, but we're not living that way, which calls into question that we don't really believe it. And then the last example right now for a biblical atheist is from Jesus in John 14. Jesus never dealt with simple, straight-up Epicureanism or simple, straight-up philosophical materialists. You don't find him bumping into a guy who says, Hey, Jesus, you can't be the Son of God because only atoms exist. The closest in the New Testament might be Paul when he goes to Athens in Acts 17 and talks to the Epicureans there. But Jesus doesn't deal with those, but he deals with people who qualify as biblical atheists, nonetheless. And John 14 is a good example. You believe in God, believe also in me. These can't be separated, I'm going to argue. If you argue God exists, and you come short of affirming who Christ is, you don't know God. You haven't given a proof of God. You've given something else. And so Thomas, he tells the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not one of the ways. I am a way. I am the way. You can't come to the Father except through Christ. And that includes with arguments. And you might be surprised at that because you say, well, I thought we're coming here to learn about arguments to come to God. Well, arguments to come to God through Christ. You can't come to God apart from Christ. And if you think you've done that, but you've rejected Christ, you're in the, in the role of the Pharisee who was much more religious than you, so you're actually in worse shape than the Pharisee because at least they kept the command so well. You might, I don't mean, I'm only speaking when I look around and say you, and you think, oh, he speaks to me, no. Uh, we got an audience online also, we got future watchers. You, the audience, don't want to be with the Pharisees for this reason. They, they didn't make it and they did better than you. So you're definitely not going to make it. If that's your plan. So there must be a different plan. So then he says, If you'd known me, 
you would have known my father also. I've been with you so long, how have you not known me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And the works I do, I do so the, God, so the Father may be glorified. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So do you hear the psalm there? Back up to Psalm 111. If you know God, those who, those who fear God, keep his commandments. And now you might say, whoa, the New Testament is about love. The Old Testament was about fear. Well, no, in the Old Testament, we're also told to love God, to seek God, to seek what is good. Amos chapter 5 says both of those, seek God and seek what is good and hate evil. So we're to love Christ and keep his commandments, which he's identifying with God's commandments. And this brings up a topic we'll discuss later, love of God. If we love God, we would seek God. If we seek God, we would find him. We would understand his eternal power and divine nature. If we find him, we would keep his commandments because we understand who's giving them. So see how those three go together? I'm starting to get you into arguments now. I'm warming you up. Those three all go together. And this is true about love. Think about love and what you love. Things you love doing. You want to do them as much as you can. And you probably know a lot about them. If I was to ask you questions about it, you'd be able to tell me all kinds of things about whatever it is you love. And so when we put up someone saying, I love God, next to the fact that they can recite every Pokemon power, well, it doesn't seem to add up. Let me think of a more mature example for this group on. But you get the point. It doesn't add up. You know all about this. You know very little about God at all, but you say you love God. And that certainly doesn't translate in the romantic relationship sense of love. When you're in love with somebody, you don't even think they have any blemishes. You just extol all the things that are great about them. In the human level, that starts to fade when you do realize, oh, this person's a human. They have faults, and that fades. With God, that would never fade. So God, if we love God, we'd seek God. And we can ask ourselves that. What do I do to seek God? That's different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees might say, I keep his commands, but they don't understand God. Especially in John 14, they're, they're, uh, that would apply to them. He's talking to the disciples there, but that would apply to them. You don't know me, so you don't know the Father. You don't understand. You've kept certain outward commandments, 
And I want to make sure you distinguish between our commandments and God's law. Those are different. You've kept certain outward commandments, but you haven't understood the purpose of them, which were to point us, the, the Old Testament law was to point us to Christ. You didn't understand that, and so you, you weren't seeking God. So the biblical atheist, we want arguments against biblical atheism. We can find them in the scriptures, but we already know them, or we can know them, say, general revelation. I, I think when the Psalms tell us this, they're building on general revelation. And the Psalms tell us to fear God. That's a general revelation truth. Everyone should fear God. Even if they don't have the Bible, you should feel, fear God from general revelation. So that's what we're going to be doing this is kind of a summary of our general purpose at, at the General Revelation Institute and also the focus for the rest of this morning. So we'll, we'll pause there. We'll have a little break.